Could you introduce yourself? I'm Alison. I was born in Britain. I'm an Irish father and a Welsh mother. And when I was two years old, they decided to start a new life in Portugal. So I grew up in just in a small village outside Lisbon, very poor village where everybody was illiterate except the priest. And so I grew up there and went to the local primary school run by the British. And I had to go every day by bicycle and along very unstable roads. And that was my background as a child. Wow, very interesting. From the beginning, you were international person. My, my father started a business there and he was faced with challenges, not having spoken Portuguese. He was born in Tunisia of Irish parents, so he already mastered four languages before the age of four. So he quickly adapted to the Portuguese way of life. Portuguese became my second language. We spoke English at home. So yes, one could say that we were used to foreign, unfamiliar ways. Yes. I guess that uh, kind of helps with the creativity of a person. And adapting. And adapting. Yeah. Yes. Adapting to all manner of circumstances and seizing the opportunity. Do you remember when you decided to become an artist? Actually, I always loved drawing. I always loved painting. And, but I didn't really see myself as an artist, a practicing artist, until a man came who was a friend of a friend. He was a practicing professor of art in a London college. And the friend said, I think you should meet Russell Reeve because he should look at Alison's artwork. So when he looked at it, he said, but why aren't you at art college? At the time, I was attending courses at Lisbon University. I was then 17, 18. And my father understood very well because he liked to draw. He was very creative in his own way, but he was also practical. And he said, you know, Alison, artists don't very easily earn a living. So I want you to prove to me that you can earn a living. And then he said, I will help you with your studies as an artist at art school. And what were you studying before that in the university? At the University of Lisbon, I was studying Portuguese language and literature. And eventually my father thought that would be a good background to go to the foreign office and have a good steady job. But clearly it did, wasn't to be. Happen? <laughs> it did not happen. And when Russell Reeve came and saw my portfolio and said, I think you should go to art college, the one where I'm teaching. So I thought that sounds great. And, but my father then said, no, you must prove your, yourself. So you go and have a secretarial course. A secretarial course was something at that time which would bring in an income. So off I went again to London and I endured six months of learning how to type, touch type, and 
shorthand. What is that? Then Pittman's shorthand. Ah, you don't know what Pittman's shorthand? Ah, shorthand typing, shorthand writing is, if you're a secretary, if you can do shorthand, it means that you can write easily a letter by dictation from ah, your right. boss. Yes, yes. So that's called shorthand. There's an old English word for it. Yes, it's called shorthand. And Pittman was the man who invented that, James Pittman. Anyway, my dad then said, well, you need to get a job to show me that you can do something with your secretarial training. So I, a friend of mine heard about a job at a school in Switzerland and they needed an assistant secretary. So off I went to Switzerland and I became an assistant secretary. My dad was satisfied that I could now earn a living. So he said, okay, September, you can start at your college. And they had accepted me as a student. So that was now in 1965. Five years later, I graduated and yes, the rest is history. It's interesting that it's not a, just a straightforward line. No, it was not. And I loved it. Uh, being in London during the swinging 60s, it was a, 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 a city with a lot of activities, opportunities for an art student. And I really made the most of it. You were studying painting there or what? I was in the fine arts department. It was called Hornsey College of Art in North London. And at that time, the fine arts department was located at Alexandra Palace, which was a vast brick palace. And the BBC studios had one end of the building and we had the ballroom, the fine arts department. So painters, sculptors and printmakers occupied the ballroom. That sounds amazing. It was. And the view over North London was stunning. So that was where I did my degree or my, yes, in fine arts, which of course included philosophy, it included uh, history of art, it included all these basic subjects that relate to a degree in fine arts. So yes, that was the beginning. During your studies, how was it? Did you have a community of friends there and how did they affect you? Did you learn from each other a lot? And... Indeed. I shared a flat with fellow art students and indeed one of them turned out to be a Finn and she was a ceramics student at the same college in the ceramics department and she was looking for a flat and looking for somewhere to live and that was during the sit-in. I don't know if you've heard about the student sit-ins in 1968. They started in Nanterre in Paris. The first student sit-ins in May 1968. It hopped over the channel and in June 1968 our college went on strike. Why? Because the students were not happy with the way the student funds were being managed by the college. So the whole college shut down in June. We had all sorts of very interesting speakers come because no student had ever gone on strike anywhere in the UK. So we had ambassadors going all over the UK promoting our thoughts and ideas about art and importance of art in society and so on. It was because of that strike 
so they didn't actually reopen the studio until November of that year. And I went back to college in September and went to the office and said, when are we starting? Oh no, we haven't resolved the issue. So that, and she said, where have you been last summer? I said, I have been in Finland. Oh, well, over there is sitting one of our only Finnish student. Oh. Why so were you in Finland that summer? I was in Finland as an exchange student, teaching ah. English to a little girl in Asikkala, which is near Vaksu, which is near Lahti. And this was deep in the middle of the forest by Lake Bayane. So that was my first introduction to Finland, 1968, the year of the sit-in or the strike by students. And also you may remember about the Vietnam War. It was also a very anxious time uh, in the US as well. So a lot of things were going on in London in 1968. That was also the year I first came to Finland. So when I met this young lady, Karola is her name, Karola, she uh, was looking for a flat and I suggested she come and join me. And we became friends and she introduced me to all Finnish people in London whom she knew, including my future husband. So that's how I came to marry a Finn in London in 1970. And then he brought me to Finland again. I then came to know his family and That was my, the beginning of my Finnish journey. <laughs> yes, my Finnish journey. So you came right after your studies, basically? Not quite. He was a, a Finn and he was a fan of rally driving, like a lot of Finns are. There is something to that. And I knew nothing about rallying, but I was in love and I shared his enthusiasm and he taught me a few tricks about rallying. And he suggested that we go off to Spain and go to Greece and do some rallies there, which is what we did for two years. And the way we survived was by putting stickers on his cat rallying car. And I was the PR lady and his navigator. You know, navigator is the one that reads the notes while the one is, the driver is driving The navigator reads out the notes, 100 right, to the left, slow down. They were actual physical notes you were reading? Yes. So we had to prepare for the rally. Wow. <laughs> so this way I learned a little bit about the villages in Spain and also in Greece because we took part in the Acropolis rally, 1972. Um, so that's, yes. So that then... Um, we realized that perhaps now we should go back to Finland and we need to earn a bit of money and settle down. Or maybe we lived with his father because we didn't know where else to live. His father lived in Munkiniemi and um, he had to get a job. He got a job as a pump attendant. I got a job as a waitress and I tried to do my painting at the same time. And I tried to find other jobs and I also tried to learn the language because that was not easy. And not only that, uh, his mother had died and left him a piece of land in the Swedish-speaking part of Finland on the Hanko 
peninsula. And so we built a little house there, a little sauna, actually. And the neighbors were all Swedish-speaking fishermen and farmers. And they didn't speak any Finnish. So, but they were very sweet people and invited me to coffee. And we would sit in silence. I was now trying to master two languages at once. And, and you, were, you said you were painting simultaneously. I was trying to and earn a living at the same time. So I was a, I was a waitress. Then I found a job as uh, teaching at the Adult Education Institute, the Tjörvain Opisto in Finnish and Arbis in Swedish. And in the beginning, I had a dictionary in each pocket so that I could... Depending on which class you go to. <laughs> which class I was at. And I was teaching... Uh, silk screen printing at Dörvain Opisto and then at the Swedish speaking one, the Arbis, I was teaching both silk screen printing and Chinese brush painting. That was later, much later. So it was inherited from your art degree, which was a bit more open, like fine arts, not, not specifically painting or sculpture or printmaking. Yes, drawing and painting was my love and passion. I had a special interest in portraiture and I read a book then in 1976 which actually changed the direction of my technique. Until then I had been used to painting in oil and acrylic and to some extent in watercolour but then I read Zen and the Art of Archery by a man called Elgen Herigel, a German who was teaching German in Japan. And a friend of his told him, why don't you take up archery? And he thought this sounded interesting, but he had no idea that this actually was really a means to an end if you want to become a Zen Buddhist. And he had no idea that his master of archery was a Zen Buddhist. That then led him to write this book, which then introduced me to painting in the Chinese way, because Zen and the art of painting, Zen and the art of flower arranging are all connected. That then took me on another trajectory. So what were you painting until that point, like a subject? Portraits landscapes and very much in Helsinki. Did the subjects change after that book or just the N tools More changed? the technique, I would say, was, was, was then I became much more open to both the quality of the paper upon which I was painting. I also then understood that one could use collage in another way. I had not uh, done that at college. Collage then became much more interesting after I came to Finland. I met a Finnish painter called Anitra Lukander who opened my eyes to other possibilities. And she was inspired by other artists who were open to different techniques. And then sometime after that, I guess you started your travels? After I read this book by Eugene Herigel, 
Zen and the Art of Archery, I determined to find myself a Chinese master. That was not easy. It took me three years. Finally, I found one in Singapore. So then I went on, in 1979, I flew to Singapore. I was there for three or four months with Nai Sui Leng, my Chinese master, who was found for me by the director of the Singapore the Singapore National Gallery, the director of the Singapore National Gallery. He had been at Hornsey, so that's why he was intrigued by this young girl who wants to learn Chinese brush painting. And he had been at Hornsey College, this director. He was a Singaporean. That then gave me a whole nother approach to painting. And the surface quality of the paper, the grinding of the ink, the kind of brushes which I carry with me changed dramatically from that point on because I realized that the Chinese had a lot to teach us when it came to nobody at art college had taught me how to do watercolor like the Chinese do watercolor or use their paintbrush, nobody. Because watercolor is usually considered in the West art history a little bit like a lower grade yes. medium. Yes, it is. So, and because nobody had formally taught me that, it was a revelation to me when I realized that if you hold brush in a special way, which the Chinese do, not the Western way, you have much greater control over your color. You have greater mobility from the shoulder and the whole process became different. So that, and then the same, the same director of the National Gallery, the Singaporean, I'm, and he's showing me around the Singapore National Gallery and all the Chinese brush painters, all the Chinese painters there. That's when I became introduced to some of the heroes Chi Pai Shi. Maybe somehow on this side. Like this one. Chi Pai Shi. He, for, for whoever is listening and not watching this. Yes. Chi Pai Shi. Showing a drawing. Yes. And he, di he died. Um, he, he, I mean, he's relatively recent. But the one that he said, you have to go and see the paintings of Chu Ta. I said, well, who is Chu Ta? He is the equivalent of Rembrandt in Chinese painting. Oh, I said, okay. So when I came back, I thought about this. I thought, hmm, China, hmm, I need to think about this. So I then saved a little money and got on the Siberian Railway and went to Beijing from Moscow and then from Moscow down to Nanchang. Where is Nanchang? It's in southeast. Uh, China, and Nanchang was the seat of the Cultural Revolution, 1966, and lasted for 10 years. Nanchang was a very important cultural center, and during that time they re reduced that whole town to rubble. And outside that town was something they did not destroy, which was the hermitage to which 
Chuta retired for 27 years of his life. It was in the middle of paddy fields. And so there they have the best collection of Chuta's work. And so that's where I went. And I was much impressed. And there was, it was well worth the visit. This is in Kyoto? This, this particular one. Okay. But there's a collection of his work in Prague. Oh, that's more accessible. More accessible. A bit closer. <laughs> but unfortunately, I never saw it because it was closed the Monday, that Monday when I was there. Oh. But you went to, to his place, so... I went to his place in... There's so much more. Hermitage in Nanchang. It was inspiring. Definitely worth a visit. Maybe we should mention that the book you are showing this from is actually your book. Yes. You, you have a very big exhibition coming very soon, and this book is uh, kind of part of the pro whole project. That is correct. Of uh, gathering all your art. Yes. Maybe you want to tell about it? It's a lot of work. Um, this was written actually during the time of COVID because I could not have the exhibition in 2022. So during the time I was preparing for the exhibition, my partner suggested I write a book instead. So instead of an exhibition? Well, we're waiting to be able to have the exhibition postponed till 2023. So that was the origin of this. And this is really summarizing the journey as an artist. The cover actually shows the Russian Far East, which is another very beautiful part of the world that you traveled to? To where I have been uh, visiting and where I was also artist in residence, but that's now some time ago, 2012. I know you have been traveling a lot. Was that always your goal to, to have a life where you are able to go to very far away places? Or did it just happen? The purpose of, of those travels was always fueled by curiosity and also trying to learn from other artists. So that was the motivation behind these travels, to learn more about these different artists. For example, Sikkim. I wanted to see paintings in Sikkim by Buddhist artists. I got a scholarship to Dunhuang in the Gobi Desert in China uh, in 1987. Again, these are magnificent paintings inside caves, sculptures done by superb craftsmen, and it's on the Silk Road. And rich merchants would pay artists and sculptors to do these works of art in these sandstone caves in China. That was another purpose for going to, to that part of the world. Not to mention then Bhutan. Why? Because they have also some magnificent art too. And this brings me to Tiger's Nest. 
tiger's nest. You have to see it to believe it, perched on the edge of a rocky mountain. And it's, is it like a whole village? It's a, it's a, it's a monastery. A monastery. There's a whole series of legends of the monk who influenced the Buddhist teachings or teachings of the Buddha to the Bhutanese. He's supposed to have flown on the back of a tiger and this monastery magically appeared. These, there are many legends related to this particular monk. One has to see this. It's a, it's a very strong hike to get up here. And this is a print of your drawing? This is a, a print of, of a painting I did of, of the location and it's seen from another mountain, another hill I should say. So these journeys have been fueled by a desire to become acquainted with inspiring art throughout the world, where possible. That's yes. just wonderful that you actually managed to, to do them. That's the, that has been the aim, and but it's still there's still more to discover. There's still more to explore, and when the exhibition is over, that is the plan: is to try to explore other parts. I want to visit the wonders of Bulgaria. That's nice. Sofia, <laughs> Romania. I have not been to. Those areas that, yes, and I would like to visit more closely Serbia, Belgrade. Uh, I have visited Croatia. I have been much impressed by what I've seen there. But yes, we have a limited time on this planet and we have to make the most of that time. South America is another one. You were to Nicaragua there? Yes, I was working as a volunteer there from 92. 1992 to 96. That enabled me to go and see some of the wonders of Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and also Machu Picchu in Peru. Those were just a few of the wonders that... Is there, is there a continent you haven't been to? I have not seen the paintings of mainland Australia. However, I have been to Macquarie Island where they don't have any art, but they have a wonderful wildlife, penguins, sea lions. So that is inspiring and is a reason to have one sketchbook close to hand. Yes, the power of the, the sketchbook. sketchbook. Yes, this is another theme. Yes, very much so. The sketchbook is like an intimate part of my handbag because you never know when an opportunity might arise uh, one of the places that has also figured in my travels has been Malawi. And that began uh, with WWF Finland, actually slightly before that, um, 1998, when my partner, who is a scientist and was interested in freshwater fish and researching their behavior, so he had done a lot of research in Malawi and got a, a grant for environmental education in Malawi and that was from WWF USA 1998. That was a different experience teaching primary school children about 
why it's important to look after their environment and using art as a tool. And then you kept that connection to Malawi to yes. this very day. And that connection was then rekindled in 2000 when my partner Ken said, well, what is happening with WWF Finland? And I didn't know, but we both went to meet the director of WWF Finland and Ken described what we have been doing there. Oh, they said we are interested and we received funding from WWF Finland for about nine years in order to d continue the work that Ken had been doing and that what I had started in terms of environmental education. And WWF Finland founded the Malawian NGO called HEED in 2004 because they knew that at some point the money would not continue for funding. HEED stands for Health, Education, Environment and Economic Development. So it's a holistic approach to working with the communities. And that was how I became, and Ken, my partner, became involved and were founding trustees of this Malawian NGO. And we continue working with Malawi in the same capacity. That's just remarkable, among everything else too. At the interface of art and science. Because how do you convey to the next generation the importance of protecting their environment? You can have a massive amount of data, scientific data, but most people cannot necessarily understand it. So the question is, how do you expose young people to this question, how to protect the environment and not abuse it, not misuse it. So art is a powerful tool to that end. And so that's where we began. Creative recycling, handmade paper, collection of bottle tops, collection of plastic. Um, all of these became elements in what we called creative recycling. And hopefully this resonates with the younger generation in the future. And during the exhibition, we will be receiving two Malawians who will lead two workshops with two Finnish high schools. One is Kuvatarile Lukio, and the other is called Tölö Gymnasium. And 10 students from each school during four afternoons will learn how to make handmade paper led by these two Malawians. So the exhibition will be a little bit more than just a simple display of my five decades of artwork. Simple display. <laughs> Maybe we should say the exhibition is going to be in Kapelitehtas. That's correct. And the opening is? It, the opening is actually on the 22nd. Uh, of March. Of March, yes. To the public, it is opened on the 23rd and will go on until the 10th of April. Yes. And it will be in 700 square meters of space. So there's plenty of room. The idea is to, to be able to also expose um, visiting students from other schools also to come. So where else have you done these kind of workshops apart from Malawi? Also, in, it started in Nicaragua, actually. Uh -huh. um, the finished NGO at the time was called Kepa. 
It is now called Fingo. At that time, uh, the idea was that the counterpart would supply the raw materials. They did not. So I got a very nice salary. I, we lived in a very nice house. We had now uh, our two children with us and my husband, then my then husband, uh, was working on a project. So we went as a family. When one doesn't receive the materials to work with, what do you do? You make them somehow. <laughs> That's correct. You adapt and you have to use your resources and imagination. When I saw all the garbage outside our front door, I thought we start here. And the students were then given some exercises uh, in drawing some of the rare species that are growing in Nicaragua. They were also given opportunities to recycle some of this garbage, which became handmade paper. They had an opportunity to make their own brushes because I took the hair from the nape of the neck of the young girls and we made them into brushes uh, using old biro ballpoint pens. Charcoal came from their homes so they could draw with charcoal and so they drew on their own paper. So this was the beginning for me. It was a baptism of fire, learning how to be creative with nothing. And I was given a very excellent uh, assistant, Paul Nicaraguan, who understood and I learned very rapidly Spanish because that was the language in Nicaragua or that is the language in Nicaragua. So that was the beginning of learning how to adapt when you don't have any art materials. Uh, it was in Nicaragua that I then met Ken, my current partner, and he was also working on the Great Lakes of Nicaragua. Uh, and was interested in the work I was doing related to art and environmental education. So that's when we began working at the interface of art and science. And who was our hero? Leonardo da Vinci. Why? Because of his innate curiosity and his powers of observation, both definitely involved when you are either a scientist or an artist. So that then led to my four years of living in the US and practicing all that I had learned in terms of art and the environment in Nicaragua. I then worked with teachers and in rural USA, Western Maryland, Appalachia. Were you deliberately choosing remote locations? Or this is where Ken had his house and he had two children by his former marriage. So we were now what is called a blended family with four children. And this was a challenge also trying to keep four children uh, in good health and at the right schools uh, and at the same time he was a professor at the University of Maryland and he had his job as a professor and I was now teaching courses also to 
adjudicated youth, young people who are incarcerated, who have committed a crime, right. and who are supposed to be rehabilitated. There are camps in rural Appalachia where these youngsters, mainly black, some Hispanic, a few Caucasian, were sent for 22 weeks to be rehabilitated. They came from Baltimore and Washington, D.C. And so I created a course in art and environmental education at these camps. So my students were now not just teachers, but adjudicated youth, and they ranged in age from 14 to 18, before they joined their uncles and cousins in prison. Oh, so they were supposed to stay in prison? N no, they were, in pri they were incarcerated, but most of their families were involved in crime of some sort. Yeah. So they were children who had not had an opportunity had been at a disadvantage from a young age and had now become involved in crime, drugs, yeah. stealing cars, and so, so forth. But they had to have a minimal amount of education when they were in these camps. So they introduced art and the environment as part of their curriculum. Many of them thought that art was just for kindergarten. They had never drawn anything before. But I became very close to some of my students because they were very talented and showed possibilities for a career in that field. But it was a hopeless situation because when I phoned up the probation officer of one of these children and said that I think that Johnny should go to art college, he said, ma'am, I've got 60 boys on my books. So, it was clear that he was not going to be involved in one particular boy's future career. Maryland, the state of Maryland, is the same, has the same size population as Finland, 5.5 million. At that time, Kathleen Kennedy was the governor. This became clear that there was polarization in the cabinet. Half of the people wanted them to be rehabilitated, Half of them wanted to just lock them up and throw away the key. So it was not so easy. So that was four years. You were doing that for four years? We had a grant for three years with this adjudicated youth. I was also teaching teachers in the town close to where we lived. But it put in perspective how lucky we are when we have the educational opportunities that Finland has to offer, for example. And it makes one realize how if you have a family that encourages education and wants to, that to see you succeed educationally, then you have a much greater opportunity. These boys, they were all boys, that where I worked the in, in, the in, in these camps, they had not had that opportunity. So, but because of the introduction to Malawi, um, I came back to Finland and with the two girls and Ken and was still working in, in Maryland, but we now were committed because of our connection with WWF Finland to working in Malawi. 
So we had to organize our lives in a different way. So your your home was not only one apartment, but then spread to spread, another continent. Spread. It required flexibility, adaptation, yes, patience, sense of humor, yes. <laughs> and you were keeping your art practice all along uh, this all, time? All the time, yes. Wherever possible, yes. Art was central to my teaching in general. Nature has always been a source of inspiration and it really started in Portugal because we had a summer cottage down on the southwest corner of Portugal, our family. Sagres, the, the sea, the, beautiful, the beauty of the rocks and the sea and the sky there was an inspiration and has stayed with me ever since. So the Skerries, the Turku archipelago, and Sibbo nowadays. I go often to Sibbo and I paint there. So, yes. And at the same time, Ken, my partner, and I, we were still now committed to Malawi. But at the same time, we wanted to explore. Ken, as a scientist, has great curiosity, as do I, as an artist. So, we went to the Russian Far East, and that was on our list of places to explore. We went down to Antarctica. We went up to the North Pole. And I was an artist in residence on three journeys. So that was nice to that he could come along as my assistant, my noble artist assistant. Yes, so that has also occupied our time and been an inspiration for my own art too visiting these different places. And the mo more recent one has been Bhutan and Nepal. Both countries have a wonderful artistic tradition. And we have been hiking in Nepal and we would like to return. Bhutan stands out because it embodies the important issues for harmonious existence. It has gross national happiness instead of gross national product enshrined in their constitution. 750,000 people and education and health are central and a very rich culture. Have you done workshops there? I have done a workshop in Nepal. I first met these two Nepalese papermakers in Washington, D.C. They came to give a workshop. This is when I was living in the US and I was mightily impressed by them. And so when we went to Nepal in Kathmandu, we found out that they now had a thriving business of paper making. 80 people they employed. So we went to see their facility and I said, well, have, you, have they considered tea bags? Have they considered onion skins? When they make their paper, they are strictly involved with a plant that grows in the Himalayas called the Daphne plant. And that is the basis for Nepalese paper. And so I was trying to show them that there are other organic substances that can also make interesting paper. So they invited me to give a workshop to a local school to young children or secondary school children.
came and so that was another challenge so they were able to support their they were both of them buddhist from the sherpa region of nepal and the sherpas are well known for their mountain climbing abilities so they were helping to support their mountain villages by the sales of their paper in Kathmandu that was an interesting a very interesting insight into a, a tradition that they have developed made into a, a good business and they look after their their employees i i found that very inspiring yes and the bhutanese uh, so they they actually follow the tibetan way of making paper the nepalese the tibetan way of making paper is very distinct and the bhutanese have not followed that they have had funding from the japanese and so their paper making is following the japanese model which is different these are just the interesting differences in the paper that's made in these two respective countries and was the russian far east travels before that or after that before ah uh, before before there were cruises organized by some new zealand uh, a new zealand company so the idea was a small vessel with 48 passengers that started in pk port petropavlos kamchatsky which is the capital of kamchatka so one had to find one's way if one wanted to join that cruise from usa from europe and fly to moscow or to a nearby airport so it was not easy to get to kamchatka kamchatka is a long peninsula with volcanoes and some of them are, are still alive and so the idea with these cruises was that you went to see the wildlife along that coast which is rich in whales sea lions bird life stellar eagles are unique to that area bering vitus bering was a dane who worked for peter the great and he took 2 years to get from st petersburg to kamchatka with years yes and vitus bering was told to find out how to to get to america that was his there was another where was the end of of russia he he was sent as an explorer bering strait is named after vitus bering so we were following some of his ports of call one could say and the commander islands are islands outside kamchatka or outside the russian far on the coast off the coast and we went there with as i said 48 passengers so and the bar was a studio when it was raining and the deck was a studio when it was fine weather and when we went ashore to look at whatever we were going to look at we had a fine studio so that was my job as a an artist in residence and ken got a free passage if he could become a volunteer in the bar and my noble assistant <laughs> so that's how um this artist in residence job was and my students were 
great variety of nationalities. So you were supposed to teach them something there? Or... If, they, if they wanted, if uh -huh. they didn't have to. It was a voluntary, but because uh, this was advertised in their brochures, that they would, I think they advertised at some point. Mm. So if they had an interest in art, they could now practice it. And I had a group and they <laughs> seemed to be interested in drawing whales or landscapes or sea lions and penguins because when we land, not penguins, sorry, not penguins. I hope you cut that out. That's Antarctica. <laughs> but anyway, yes, Russian Far East is rich in beautiful wildlife. The people of Chukotka, which is opposite Alaska, and the Evenki people, these are indigenous peoples who have basically had their culture disrupted by the Russians. But we were warmly received. We managed to take a trip up the Anadir River. Anadir is the capital of Chukotka. And we went 400 kilometers up the river and were warmly received in the Yaranga. That's the small teepees that they, they live in the summertime. The Chukchi people, they are called Chukchi. And I did some drawings there. And of course, the, their portraits and the landscapes were very inspiring. Chukotka is the size of France and Germany and has 56,000 people. At that time, it had... Not that many. Not that many. <laughs> so very sparsely populated. And how long did you spend in the Russian Far East? We went on one journey in 2009 and the next journey was 2012. I should say there were a few months at a time because the, the passengers changed, as you understand. So the passengers came for one month, I think. Oh no, was it three weeks? I, I, mean, I, I, can't, I can't remember. Two weeks or three weeks, and then they got off, and then the next slot came on. So I would say there were sort of three-week stints. Uh, it, was, it was stimulating. Another way to see wildlife and interact with people of a different culture. There were French, there were Canadians from the US, from all over, German, and then after that, you went to Antarctica? We went that? to, actually, no, that was earlier. We went to Antarctica in 2007. And I think that's how our Russian Far East journeys then evolved from that, because we went there from New Zealand and took a boat down to the Antarctic. And the leader of that expedition was Heritage Expeditions. So that was the beginning of our association. And then I was, of course, drawing and sketching all the time on this boat. And this was a, a, a something we had a long time saved for and decided this is what we want to do. And we went and visited Shackleton's hut, Scott base in the Ross Sea. And that was a bit of history that was something that we both valued. And I remember walking with the leader of the expedition we, we couldn't go any further to get to Scott Base. There was ice, so we had to get off and walk on the ice, which is what we did. We walked, I think it was 19 kilometers that day. 19 kilometers mm. on the ice. There and back Oof. to get to Scott Base. That gave you a sense of the distances and the 
conditions under which those early explorers of Antarctica were faced with. Yeah, now it's uh, pretty easy to take a plane and go to the other mm -hmm. side of the world. Mm. I, I mean, this was now from South Island in New Zealand. South Island is distinct from North Island. So the ship sailed from a port called Bluff on the edge of South Island. And then you go through the Roaring Forties, which is a very, very rough sea. Very rough. The Roaring Forties. If you punch that into the web, you'll read about it. It's the most turbulent waters, I think, on the planet. Then we got onto Karma, into Karma waters when we got closer to the Ross Sea. Ross Sea is the inlet where Shackleton and Scott all went. Yes. So that was that was on our bucket list. Do you know what is a bucket list? I know, I know. Do, do so, you do you decide your destinations on your bucket list according to different explorers? No, routes? no, no, no. It's <laughs> but, just a coincidence. No, it just because we're both interested in history. And, we, and Ken particularly was interested in the Antarctic and the Arctic. And we both of us thought, yes, why not? You know, let's go to New Zealand. Let's start with the Antarctic. So that was, that was something we saved up for. We decided that was important. And, <laughs> and we went to Macquarie Island. So you asked, have I been to every continent? Macquarie Island belongs to Australia. So technically, technically. you have been... To every continent. But that's then where, the Arctic? When did the Arctic? The Arctic happened about six months later. That's right. We, we saved, we wanted to go to both, po to both ends of the earth. And that was different. We went up to Murmansk. And from there, we took a ship up to the North Pole. And that was different. And they, there, was, there was an artist in residence on that ship as well. Not me, someone else. And I watched how he was doing his artist residency. That gave me an insight into the possibilities of being an artist in residence. And he, he was an Englishman and he was doing his own work and then engaging. I, I was more fascinated by the students and so I did drawings of them. And how long did you spend in the Arctic? Not very long. It was called the Yamal. The ship that we were on. It was a Russian ship, of course, and it was difficult to pull it and maneuver it in the ice sometimes. But when we arrived at exactly the North Pole point, we were all informed that we are now at the North Pole, and then we stopped, and then we were encouraged to go for a swim in the North Pole, or at the North Pole. And we duly got down off the Yamal, and somebody had made a hole in the ice, <laughs> and so we went for a swim. I did. I wanted to say I had been swimming in the North Pole. <laughs> That's definitely something to brag about, <laughs> for I don't sure. Know. No, I don't for know. Sure. It was just a, it was a fun thing. Just a fun thing to do, nothing more than that. And, um, I mean, I would brag about it if I had done such a thing. Would it's, you? Uh, 
I, it, I, don't, I, don't, I don't talk about it. It's a very brave thing to do. <laughs> well, no, there are other people around, so you're not, you're not going to drown. But yeah, just... but you can get a heart attack or something. Yes, <laughs> is that cold? It is cold, yes. Well, actually, when we were up in, the, in Norway, in the Barents, or near the Barents Sea, so Ken said, no, I'm not going in. I said, I want to go. This was the very first time we were up in, in, in the Arctic together. He wanted to explore Norway. This is Ken, who's American. So I said, I, don't you want to go for a swim? No, he says, you can go. So I said, I decided I wanted to swim in the Arctic Ocean. That was the beginning. That's a long time ago, before we went to the North Pole. So, the, so it, but you, you know, you just dip. You don't stay very long. Well, yeah, yeah. but still. I have only once dipped myself in the Finnish Sea after many hours of sauna to gather the courage to do it. When it's icy? It was like beginning of December, a bit icy, yeah. It was horrendous. <laughs> yes. Of is. course, after that, you're just full of joy that you didn't die. <laughs> yes. And you feel invigorated too, don't you? Yeah, yeah, you do. You do feel invigorated. I mean, there is a whole community of people doing that all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Just outside here, mm-hmm. they're doing this all the time. Yeah. I call them toughies. So um, maybe it's good to mention that we are in your studio space, uh, or kind of, adopted studio space. It's an adopted studio space, correct. This came about in an unexpected way, and... I'm not sure how long it will remain my adopted uh, studio space, but certainly during the exhibition, we shall have one Nicaraguan, two Malawians, and two Nepalese living here. So this will be occupied, this space. What happens after the exhibition is uncertain. For the time being, a glorious mess while I frame and make lists and yes. But that's the most interesting part to see the glorious mess. <laughs> Have you been working here or yes. just organizing? No, very much so. I, when you say working, I have been framing. You, you see there's some frames down at your feet there. Yes, a um, lot of work. Because when we repaired the flat upstairs that had the ceiling falling down, and it, everything had to be renovated. We were living down here, so we brought all our books down here. All the books you see, they were all upstairs. This bunk was upstairs. Everything was upstairs, but now it's downstairs. So, so maybe maybe just explain that this is an apartment building and you, is, you're living a bit upstairs, and this, this space is yes. two floors down. Two floors down, that is correct. Original living space is two floors above, Exactly the same, 61 square meters. And down below is what really is my studio, which is about 12 square meters. Which we will go to and we will see. You can see that's also a mess, a glorious mess, um, because I have tried to organize all the different paintings into boxes and themes. So that's why it's a mess. So I don't actively work in there at the moment in the sense of, you know, it's not a studio at the moment, it's a storeroom. 
Let's talk maybe a little bit about the studio in general. Like how important is having a studio for you? Very important. Because the tools with which you work are part of the process. And you need a certain space, minimal amount of space, to be able to do the work. In my case, it is primarily two-dimensional. However, I have also experimented with other materials like glass. And glass is another process. But to do that, I went to a friend's house because she has a kiln. And so that was something that came about about ooh, more than 12 years ago and sprang from my very first stained glass course I did as a fine, at fine arts department up at Alexandra Palace. Stained glass was part of that. And I always loved glass. And the question was now, when my friend suggested that I can go down to her studio in Inco and try my hand at fused glass. This was not stained glass, but fused glass. So that was another opportunity which I seized upon. Yes, so that's... And glass is very difficult to work with generally and, and you really need the kiln. You can't you do, do anything you have without to, it. Yes, yes, that's correct. But it was also selecting the colors because colors act differently. You, there are certain types of glass that are incompatible. I didn't know this. Mm, really. And, um, you know, what happens under certain uh, temperatures and that was a challenge. And I had specific themes I was interested in. It was to do with dancing and figures and how to experiment and see what happens to glass under certain conditions. So, yes, it was again another area for exploration. Yeah. Have you always had that, that studio downstairs? or Because yes. you had so many travels and during those, yes. what maybe your sketchbook is your studio a little bit. Well, to some, yes, I'd say the sketches, the sketchbook is an integral part of my personal equipment, just like the Chinese paintbrush that's over there. The studio is really a place where one can go and practice and work out certain ideas, an important space. And of course, a tabletop. So in here, we have a tabletop where I have been working and all, like I said, all the tools that you need are nearby. So the tabletop is an important part in a Very studio important. for you? Extremely important, yes. And then little areas within the, with or on top of the table, like I have in here, I have area for pins, the other for tape, the other for various, but it's sort of, a, it's a, a small replica of what I have downstairs. But and at the moment... Have you ever shared a studio with somebody or not? No. no. No, that's not true. That is not true. I have. When I first came to Finland, I did weaving. And it was because my first exhibition, which was very, very modest, in Taide Kellari, in Boulevardi, Taide Salonki Kellari. And now, I don't know, I don't think it exists anymore. But anyway, somebody walked in and introduced herself as a weaver. I said, oh, and she said, yes, do you want to come and see? I'm living at home and I weave at home. I went to go to her home and I so I learned how to weave. That was back in 1973. That was my exposure to, 
to weaving with rags and out of that developed my interest in using weaving as a way to convey images basically two-dimensionally I mean it's not just it's just as a wall hanging so that was that was the my weaving phase so yes we shared a studio we rented a place in Merimiehenkato and then after that we rented a shop space in Pietrinkato and we were both weaving there and we both had exhibitions together of our weavings our woven items and then little by little I felt that weaving was fun to do but I really wanted to get back to my painting so I think it was mutually understood and she wanted to do other things so that was the end of the weaving phase I haven't and then that's that's right we I had a, a loom down at this little cottage uh, in Hanko so I, I have a question about where you store your art but you kind of answered it already I mean it's at the moment kind of everywhere it's everywhere right now but you don't have a separate storage somewhere no I do like actually a... no it's not quite true no. I have a storage cupboard opposite my studio downstairs and, and by downstairs we mean in the basement in the basement correct yeah. and I've stored it there up in the Vinti up in the attic I also have a storage space but that is more tricky because anything to do with paper you don't keep it up in the attic so I can keep oil paintings up in the attic but not mm. watercolor that kind of thing it's always a bit of a problem my, my art has not been very large but so for example up in the flat upstairs I did a large six paneled painting painting with six panels of dancers and that evolved in the sitting room <laughs> not down in my little studio of 12 square meters so as Ken just told you a moment ago yes I expand to the space I'm living in <laughs> and um, did you ever had this community of other artists around you or were you just traveling no no I, I became friends with a number of artists yes absolutely yes and I because I was teaching in the Arabic the Swedish speaking yeah. and then the so I became friends with some of my students and they have become lifelong friends also artists in their own way how important is a community in your opinion for an artist to have these other like-minded people around I, I would say that I'm more of a loner mm. as a as a as an artist but I, I like to be able to c connect with other artists every now and then but I don't actually have to see them all the time so yes but I enjoy I have one friend who's was studying with me in Hornsey and he got a scholarship to Finland about the time that I came he married a Finn and I married a Finn so we have kept up ever since and he is he has been teaching at the Finnish Academy of Art so yes so I would say that's an example of a, of a kindred spirit and another artist whom I can connect with yes and do you do you go to exhibitions to check what other people are yes, doing yes very much so, so. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yes 
I think that's very important just to see what's going on. And there's a lot that I don't understand that's going on today in terms of art. Maybe I've had other experiences. What are the trends that I'm, I'm looking at and what is it that makes people do what they do? I don't know. This is something I, yes, I do want to find out. What are people doing? Yeah. What are some other artists that have been influential for you? You mentioned Leonardo, but... Yes. Uh... Okay. I've always been fond of portraiture ever since I could start drawing. I was drawing girls with girls in profile, yes, but portraiture. So when I think back on the best portraits artists, I start with Rembrandt. I think, oh, even before that, you know, there are some amazing, but Holbein, and I look at Vermeer, some of those portraits are so impressive. And then I look, for example, at somebody like Pablo Picasso, closer to our time, and I look at how daring he was and experimental. And I've, while I may not always appreciate everything he did, I admired his audacity. And he didn't hesitate to try something, and something that may seem impossible. And I just, I found that very exciting. And then Matisse and Bonnard, those two lived not far from each other in southern France. I went down to look at Renoir's studio. If you have not been there, that is very impressive to I see Renoir, Renoir, where he lived. And, I, and, and Matisse also. And Matisse's sense of colour and sense of composition, also portraits too, I admired Matisse. So there are many closer to our time, I mean, in terms of painting. And I would say that today I'm, I'm looking at some artists but I can't say that there are any artists that really, and I'm speaking about today here in Finland, there is one papermaker artist whom I have worked with. He is living in Tanzania. Seppo, his name, he's a Finn. I consider him an excellent artist. And I've learned so much from him because I consider papermaking one very strong way to express oneself, artistically speaking. And I, that introduced me to what I call mixed media, mm. really mixed media, and playing with, with paper. Paper is a very plastic material, and Seppo Halavagno is an example of an artist who really has understood that. I mean, but he is in Tanzania right now as we speak. But he probably has a website we can check. You can, yes. Yeah. Are there some other places that inspire you, like books or website, movies, or even physical places here in the city or somewhere else? Oh, yes. I, I mean, I, interesting. I, when you say websites or books, I'm very interested in the Buddhist philosophy because I find that many of the ideas, well, actually very balanced in there, in encouraging us to live a harmonious life. So I do read books uh, by Buddhist 
So that is one area. But I, I have a very wide, broad range of books that I have been reading. I mean, if you look at our bookshelf here, you'll see there's a big range. But I'm interested in many things. And websites, um, you know, I, I can't say that I'm, I'm very fluent on websites as such. Uh, I know that I have tried to create my own, as you well know and make it as accessible and easy as possible. Now, maybe just by websites, I meant places online or, or places, places of, online. offline, uh, in that sense. I'm very drawn, for example, to David Attenborough, for example. He's a man who I have great regard for, and we had the privilege of working with his film crew. Uh, several, this was in October 2021. So, yes, and they were recording a species of fish that is only found in Lake Malawi, and it's called the play-dead fish, and it's the only creature on this planet that catches its prey pretending to be dead. And David Attenborough wanted... Very, very scientifically called play-dead fish. <laughs> well, no, this is the name we give it. It has a special name in Latin, oh, okay. but uh, we call it the play-dead fish. So his team came down, and before that, we've had also the, uh, the the BBC. So this is the Freshwater series, which shall shall come out quite soon. So when you see any reference to the play dead fish, you know that we have been involved in in that. But David Attenborough, his whole approach to nature and to trying to preserve our fragile environment uh, has always impressed me. Yes. I would say that's that sort of, and then Jacques Cousteau was actually from childhood. My father was very excited by Jacques Cousteau. That was the man when I was a child who had gone, who went diving and discovered all sorts of things. Maybe it came from there, that, that interest in exploring nature. Because I remember at home, my dad talked a lot about Jean-Jacques Cousteau. So nature has been, yes, very important as a subject. And any films or any documentaries related to that will catch my attention. And if you go to, if you ever come to Africa and want to see lions, elephants, giraffe, then you'll understand why some people like David Attenborough want to preserve them mm. because they are rather majestic to watch. There are many species that are fast declining. And uh, I want to see a tiger in the wild. That's our, on our bucket list. And that, that's one hell of a bucket list you have there. <laughs> we want to see it in the wild. And that's, we can do that in Nepal. So what's your next destination? Where are you going after? After the exhibition, I have my aim to go to the northwest of Portugal. The last time I was there was 2014, when, at, the, at the funeral of a dear friend. I haven't been back since. And... In the northeast corner of Portugal, where the Douro River, if you can visualize where the Douro River runs into the city of Oporto. You've heard of Porto? Which I have is a the... friend in Porto. Oh. She lives there, yeah. Oh, maybe we'll meet because yeah. uh, we, would, we were planning that we would fly into Porto and then take a, a trip up the Douro River. That's where all the wine, the port wine, you've heard of port wine. Yes. 
Well, that's where it comes from. So on either side of the Dora River are all these vineyards. So if you take, go right up the river, you come to an area called Miranda do Douro. And Miranda do Douro is rather unique. Why? Because they have the second official language in Portugal called Mirandês. I didn't know it until 2014. When I heard about that, I thought, that's it. I must get there. But because there, are, there were then only about 300 people who spoke that language. And it's distinct from Portuguese and it's distinct from Spanish. And it's their second official language. So you asked, what is, that's the plan. I want to disconnect from everything. <laughs> and actually reconnect with Portugal because that was part of my childhood. And that the north of Portugal is different to the south of Portugal, like in a lot of countries. Well, thank you, Alison, very much for this nice conversation. It's been wonderful. And good luck with the exhibition. Thank you for your time. I also hope that the exhibition creates a reaction with the next generation, because I'm hoping that the workshops will stimulate youngsters to look at creative recycling in a new way. Yes. That's a very important course to, to be able to pass on. Yeah, hope so too.